Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm here today with uh, Inez. Yeah, we have a, a bit of news to catch up uh, with this week. Um, I you know, I wanted to start with this uh, 538 article, which you sent me, which I thought was really, really fascinating. It's by uh, Michael, a guy named Michael Tesler, uh, who is a, uh, he's a uh, professor. I don't know where now, but he was a few years ahead of me, like a few a cohort or two ahead of me, or maybe three or four. I don't know, um, when I was studying PhD at UCLA. So people knew Tesler as somebody who like, you know, was had been around the department does a lot of interesting work these people who do uh this research on american politics it's very biased um in the sense that they'll like you know they'll like basically do uh surveys where they'll say you know what do you think about race issues and if like you have basically thomas sowell's view on race that like racism is not holding black people back they'll say this is racism and they'll say racism correlates very strongly with being you know a republican which but actually when you take that data it is actually it's correct data. It's like actually true. And it does actually get at something. And so sometimes you have to interpret it and like, you know, you have to sort of just buyers beware, but the data is useful. Uh, but this is, but this, what, but this article at 538 is called uh, why Trump is polling much better among very conservative primary voters than in 2016. And so basically the main thing is that in 2016, Trump's worst group was the very conservative voter. And in 2024, right, the, the very conservative uh, Republican primary voter loves Trump more than anything, right? And this is just so interesting because he finds that basically that Republic, his argument is that Republican voters have come to sort of define conservatism as loyalty to Trump. He's got a, some data here, like Liz Cheney, her, like how conservative she's considered falls off a cliff, right, when she opposes Trump. Uh, Romney, it's a similar pattern. Um, there's other data from other senators, too, near the end of the article. But I thought this was actually fascinating and tells us something about the primary. But uh, you tell me, what did, what did you think of this? Yeah, it's interesting. I have like a, a different, I'll, I'll lay out my narrative of how I read this, and then we, you can um, give yours and we can see if there's any overlap slash just, they're just completely different universes. Of I saw this very much as a continuation of um, Tim Carney's work. If you, I don't know if you remember, but all the way back in 2015, 2016, he was writing about this and then continuing to write about this huge divide between the Cruz voters in 2016 and the Trump voters in 2016, right? Um, and and sociologically, the Trump voters are uh, less church going, more atomized, more likely to come from broken families, right? Um, also geographically in, in struggling regions. We know that that's the like constant political narrative, right? About the Breast Belt and everything else. Um, but he basically put together these two profiles, but then the, the people who would call themselves very conservative on ideological issues in 2016 or policy issues, but they tended to be more church going, more intact families, higher rates of marriage, right? Um, higher rates of being a parent, all of these these um, higher rates of civic volunteerism, um, even right. So there seemed people who essentially were in these connected communities were who were conservative were much much more likely to go for Cruz in the primary than they were to go for Trump, and vice versa. If you were sort of this atomized, disconnected, and and post religious, um, you were much more likely to go for Trump. And and I think one of the things, and I guess I'm I'm kind of putting myself into this category because I, I was quite opposed to Trump in 2016 from the right, right? Like I thought that his policy was not conservative enough, and I was a strong Cruz supporter um, for that reason. But I I think two things have happened since then that have changed those trajectory lines that that may not be just the thesis of this article, which is just that very conservative has just become an identity with Trump voters, right, or with Trump himself. Um, and, and that is one, uh, going back and reading Carney's book, who 
and, and some similar research he's done where he even recently in 2019, where he's laid out some of these patterns in American life. Um, it struck me how much more I agreed with the Trump voters that he interviewed. Whereas when I read that at 20 in 2015 and 2016, I was like, no, these guys are, are like they're leftist whiners, right? They're talking about like uh, that the system being rigged and uh, everything being stacked against them. And I was like, you sound like Bernie voters, you know, um, what where's the the sort of up by the bootstraps mentality of 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 conservatism here um and it struck me how much i agreed with them going back and reading it um a couple years ago rereading it and thinking no you know these guys saw something i didn't see which is the rot in our institutions was so deep i mean and, and it proved itself over and over and over again during trump's presidency right there were all these unprecedented things that these institutions did to try to get rid of trump that even though i didn't you know, initially like Trump, put me very, very strongly in his camp over and over and over again. And I think this is a centrality of Trump's appeal. The best part of his appeal is when he can credibly make the case that a rigged system hates him. And I think a lot more people, especially people who consider themselves very conservative, even on policy, see that very clearly and therefore identify more strongly with Trump than they did when he first started running. But you think this is something else. No, it's uh, that sort of sounds like you agree with me. You're saying, yeah, I think that basically by 2024, uh, by now, that basically conservatism means loyalty to Trump. And you're saying that basically you uh, saw that people were attacking Trump and you found yourself on the same side of Trump. And I guess that gets to that seems to be what you think is going on with the voters. Well, so I think the way you put it to me off air was something closer to personal loyalty. And I, I don't deny that there is that that core Trump voter who is very, very attached to Trump as a matter of, of charisma and personal loyalty. I'm not sure actually that it's that category that in, that's described in this 538 article. I think actually those folks tend to be more moderate on a lot of policy things, or they don't care about policy at all. And they're just in it to watch Trump smack around the left. Um, and that's culturally satisfying for them for all kinds of reasons, right? Um, but I, I think actually it's backed up by, um, what was it? Uh, Anderson, what's her name? What's her first name? The, the pollster, the Republican pollster who tweeted this article out. Um, she, her polling on the same group of people, this self-identified very conservatives, also shows them to be the most open to switching to DeSantis, right? In other words, this, this group of people and this group of voters very much likes Trump for all the reasons that I just laid out, but is also open to somebody who is is willing to sort of hit the system in the same way in in a more like conservative policy minded manner. Um so so I think those are two different groups of people going on. I think actually Trump's hardcore loyalist base is not would not be calling themselves very conservative on a survey not very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, I mean the, one of the interesting things they do in this article is they have this thing called the DW nominate score. So this is in political science is used basically to rank people uh, ideologically right to left. And the idea is that basically, you know, do they vote on the right wing or the left wing version of every bill? And it's just by, you know, some complicated math where they do it and then they figure it out. Right. And so in this, uh, in, in this, and you know, there's flaws to that, obviously it's not perfect, but as far as this goes, they have the, you know, they have the nom- DW nominate score on the X axis and then the Y axis is still how, conservative they're portrayed they're perceived and so generally the senators in their own straight the more they vote conservative the more conservatively they're uh you know they're uh, they're perceived uh but 
you can see very strongly like that the guys who voted to impeach Trump, like given where they are, like how they actually vote, like Ben Sass and Pat Toomey, you know, have very standard conservative voting records, but people with the same record, they're perceived as less conservative. Uh, and this is presumably because they voted to uh, impeach Trump. Now, maybe then maybe this doesn't maybe this doesn't matter. Uh, all you know, all that much. So I think um, the reason that that heuristic doesn't map very well onto the divisions of the Republican Party is that it doesn't reflect the long-term divide between the base of the party and leadership votes, right? So that's that's I think that's very difficult to suss out because the, the fact is that, for example, people who voted for impeachment are more like they're more establishment Republicans, all of them, and it doesn't reflect that divide that I think these poll. This, this poll and like the um, interpretation of this, these kinds of numbers may reflect. Now, maybe it reflects that identity with Trump or it reflects that group of people who are more very con- are, are more conservative in, in a serious sort of policy way, but also ended up very strongly siding with Trump, both in the general election in 2016, even though they didn't vote for him in the primary. And then even more so throughout his um, throughout his his tenure as president. But it, there's no way to to separate out those. So the people that you're listening, for example, Ben Sass might be the only exception to this. But a, a lot of the the guys who have a strong would have a strong quote unquote conservative record, meaning they vote with Republican leadership. That's how you're defining it. I, I would want to see those numbers rerun. For example, if, if this this is I don't think not even around anymore, but they had conservative review rankings, right? And that was much more like policy based. So for example, how would a survey or a study like the one you're describing? rank votes for this um this deal this debt deal right if you're voting with leadership you are you would be more conservative whereas like somebody like chip roy would be ranked as less conservative based on this vote and that's not like it assumes an identity between party leadership voting and where you are conservatively and i don't think that reflects the division in the republican party at all yeah so like to said sass but also pat i mean just pat Toomey. do you see him as an establishment uh conservative and like you know they, so, yeah i mean obviously there's a spectrum of such things but yeah fairly so like my impression of him is that he's a pretty establishment guy is is tim scott an establishment guy yeah. is uh is okay well tim scott is a little bit you know more so like they I mean they all do that you say they they vote with the establishment. they all i mean they all take a lot of part so, line so votes, then right? the question of what would separate quote-unquote the very conservative group from the general group of Republican voters to me would be exactly something like this kind of debt limit fight. Are you more sympathetic with the rebels than you are with McCarthy? Right. And those kinds of distinctions are totally lost, but to me, they're the essence of of the thing. And certainly back in 2015, 2016, that was the argument that Ted Cruz was making. He was making a trading on his, his, um, reputation during the Obamacare debates and everything else of being basically the anti-establishment guy. And he still got rickrolled by Trump. But I think those are two different groups of people who sometimes align and sometimes don't. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's just much simpler. I mean, isn't it just much simpler to assume that, look, the Republican primary voter is is very tribal. Uh, They really like Trump and they you know, they don't want anyone criticizing Trump. Like, why is that just like not the easiest, you know, easiest thing to believe? Well, I'll tell you what will separate out who's right on this um, mm-hmm. and we can return to it. And I'm open to being wrong on it. But how the attacks that Trump is using right now against DeSantis land will be an indication of which one of us is right. So in other words, 
if you see people who identify as very conservative um, turning against, not not like in any like intense way, I don't expect like a mass fallout from Trump. Um, but when Trump says things like Cuomo did a better job on COVID than Ron DeSantis, right? Or when he hits Ron DeSantis for voting against amnesty, um, how does that group of voters respond to those kinds of attacks with Trump very explicitly hitting DeSantis from the left? Uh, because I, I I think there's a lot of people out there in this category who think that Trump did a good job, think he was totally sunk by the deep state and whatever else, which I think is a view that has a lot of truth to it, by the way, um, that he would be a good president for round two. They probably think he didn't win. I mean, that he did win this time around and, and it was stolen from him. Um, and they're but, but at the same time, they don't dislike DeSantis. DeSantis, a lot of them had very positive view of DeSantis because he's enacting the agenda that they want Trump to enact. I don't think that there is this big, like, I think there are a lot of voters who like both. And to the extent that I just think it's very different than the, 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 the group of people that I think most strongly resembles this article or the explanation for it is not the one that they're talking about, but it's, it's, it's a different group of people who are one new to politics, usually swing voters, either don't care about policy at all or uh, have completely contradictory sets of, of, of policy ideas and really do are in it for personal loyalty to Trump as a, a yeah. figure. But I think those are two different groups of voters. I think they both exist, but I don't think they're like the same group of voters. And I don't think those voters are marking themselves very conservative on those surveys. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they're just, yeah, you're right. There is some kind of like new voter who didn't think about politics much, who's sort of low information, who just sort of was in it for Trump. I think a lot of like the QAnon people are like this. Some of them even have like leftist backgrounds. They, you know, they were just, they were just anti-vax or some kind of conspiracy theorist. And then they eventually, you know, became, uh, you know, became Trump supporters. The guy just spoke to them. Uh, do you ever, do you ever like watch, like you ever like actually sat down and like watch the Hannity? Yeah. I mean, regrettably. <laughs> well, he's, there's going to be um, by the maybe it'll be out by the time uh, uh, this gets released. But there's going to be a Trump Town Hall tonight uh, on Hannity, and so I mean, I think of this as like pretty much like you know clearly the Republican primary voter. And when he talks about or like when he talks about Trump or when he talks to Trump, and there was a clip I saw with uh, uh, with Trump and uh, Mark Levine uh, not that long ago, where it was the same thing. It's like they treat like you know they like DeSantis fine like Hannity I'm sure likes DeSantis but they but they treat Trump like he's god and like they don't I mean Hannity doesn't care about issues at all it's it's just it's just Trump I mean it's just like this person Hannity's was loyal to Trump been, well so Hannity has always been exactly in whatever like the line is and including from republican leadership exactly well he's but like oh, so what I'm saying is the people who are really enthused by Hannity are a different group of people than the people who watched Mark Levin or Glenn Beck Right. Th those, those are the Republican voters. What are the Republican they are. Voters? They're all yeah. Republican voters, but that's what we're talking about here. Right. Um, th they're they're a different audience. And uh, I'm not saying that the voters you're talking about don't exist. I just don't think they're marking that very conservative bubble. I, I think that that poll reflects a very real shift of people who are initially skeptical of Trump because he came from the left. The whole like the people that Cruz was talking to with that New York Democrats uh, line in the primary. Right. Um, those are the people who are initially skeptical of Trump and that now at this point have been won over by Trump, both by the way that he has been treated by the system and the left, but also due to actual achievements of his administration. Right. Um, regulatory rollback achievements. The judges were really important. The fact that he followed through on the infamous list, that's really important to this group of voters. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and those are the voters to the extent that this 
is a contest at all, if, if, if DeSantis can really get off the ground at all, I think those voters are open to listening to him saying, I will make basically, I will make the things that you liked about Trump happen more and actually execute them. Um, I think those voters are open to that case. It doesn't mean that they don't like Trump. They still like Trump. Right. Yeah. But in a way that his his harder core supporters who are non-ideological, they're not open to that at all. I think he probably has 20 or 30 percent of the Republican base voters, primary voters, like purely on basis of personality and charisma. But I think there's probably another I don't know what the numbers are, but like 20 or 30 percent who are with him because they are conservative. And I think those voters are peelable. I don't know if DeSantis can do it or not, but I don't think that those voters have the same identity equation between what it is to be conservative and whatever comes out of Trump's mouth at any given moment. Yeah. I mean, so the voters, you know, are clearly not one thing. There are some who actually care about policy, who, you know, look at DeSantis's record and say, wow, this is pretty incredible. There are people who are just sort of, you know, vegetating in front of the TV and just, you know, following, you know, the FBI uh, scandals around Trump and just love Trump, the person. And there's, you know, a lot of people who are probably uh, in between, right? And it's just a question of a numbers game. How many of each sort of category um, are in the Republican Party? And you're right. When you say 20, 30 percent, I mean, are probably unshakable for Trump. I, I would assume it's, it's more than that. It's about, you know, say it's 30, say it's 35, say it's 40. This is the, this is the. Well, that's what he won the, the 20. The reason I pulled that number out is the, the I think it was like, what, 32 or 33 percent that he actually had in the primary yeah I, well, I would assume it would be at least as much as time you know maybe a little more maybe a little less but either way uh DeSantis is gonna have to consolidate the rest right I mean this that, that's the problem the problem is you know if if these people like so Trump would you just do the math I mean you just do the math and like DeSantis has to win you know if 30 percent are in Trump's camp DeSantis has to win something like 70 or 80 percent of the rest. And that's with like everyone else in the field. Right. He has to beat Trump among that group. He's got to beat everyone else. He's got to grab 80 percent of the vote. And that's just like I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I can maybe imagine a scenario where it does, but I'm just very, very skeptical that it will. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical that he can do it as well. Um, I, I, I think that it's possible, but I think he's doing something that's very difficult which is he's making the case essentially to people who like Trump that he's going to do the same thing but better. And he's got, he's got to change their minds on that front because Trump is the proven quantity to them in that equation, right? And so, but, but I, what I'm saying is I think that this, there is a block of these people who are persuadable on that case, whether or not Ron DeSantis, whether or not they're a big enough block and whether or not Ron DeSantis can persuade 80% of them or whatever, those are open questions and I'm somewhat skeptical that he can. Um, but but I don't think that that all the people who are currently, um, for example, polling for Trump right now, I, I think some percentage of them, if they listen to the case that DeSantis is making, are going to say, well, that's reasonable. Like, I want to hear Trump respond to that, right? Like, wh- how is he going to respond to the fact that the wall has not been built? Yeah. That's a pretty basic policy position, but it yeah. is a policy position. And I think there are a lot of Republican voters who do care about that. What yeah. are you going to do about the deep state? Like concretely, how are you going to get the the, the sort of cultural boot off of our necks? Because DeSantis yeah. has a very good example of how he did that in Florida. Right. I think there are enough Republican voters who are interested in that case. I don't know if they're enough to make the, the, the difference between winning or losing the primary, but I don't think they don't exist. I think there are people like that, a substantial portion of the party is out there. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. The wall is sort of a tangible, concrete thing you can point to. You know, he'll say he'll say it did exist. <laughs> you know, I have, you know, there's really no limit to how Trump could sort of just create reality, right? He'll say the wall is there, or just you know, it's ninety percent done, or something like that. Uh, you know, and then there's some of these like critiques that Trump makes that are like you think it would be easy to push back, like the. So when he says like the election was stolen, basically in 2020, the obvious question is like, why didn't you do anything about it? And like, why won't they just steal it from you again? Because now you're not president. So like, what's going to happen differently, right? And DeSantis can't say this because DeSantis can't run on the idea that the 2020 election was real, right? <laughs> then he would be like a liberal, right? So he he's sort of, he's lost sort of like what actually would be a very strong line of attack on Trump. I see them talking a lot about why didn't you fire Fauci? Why didn't you give the country to Fauci? Yeah, you know, that could that could work. I mean, I would I would recommend doing that. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I, I think that you know that's that's reasonable. Attack him from the right and attack him on these like personal things like Fauci, like is you know, because Fauci's sort of like personalizing like everything bad that happened uh during COVID. Um, He's also making the argument that exactly kind of without without getting into so far, and I don't know if I'll be able to, without getting into litigating the, you know amount of fraud in 2020 um he has been making the argument for example he's been talking to people there there's that video of him in iowa going around where he said of course i'm going to be using ballot harvesting i'm not going to fight with one hand behind my back like that's a a division i don't know how that's going to play out in in a republican primary but like that is part of the argument he's making is i'm going to win this i'm i'm more serious about all the things that are necessary to fight in in a rigged system than trump is Whereas Trump, you know, told people not to to use mail-in balloting, I'm not only going to tell them to use it, I'm I'm going to like go ahead and use the tactics of the left because that's the playing field that we have in these states. I yeah. I think that might be a convincing argument to some people. Yeah, yeah, it might be. I mean, I think that could work too. DeSantis can also put, point to his record in Florida. I mean, they've done some things on uh, voter integrity. He could he could point to that too. He says, I'll I do more than, you know, Trump didn't do anything while he was sitting there uh, as president. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's pretty, you know, I think we can easily predict sort of the things DeSantis is saying and the things DeSantis will say. And it's just a matter of time to see the extent to which they land. Um, I've seen one poll um, nas- one national poll since the DeSantis announcement, because, you know, the South announcement is a moment you think you might get a bump. The DeSantis announcement, you know, wasn't perceived as going very well. Uh, but, you know, there's basically no change, right? It's like, you know, DeSantis gained a point, Trump dropped a few points, but, you know, it's still at 25, 30. So I, I want to see the polls, and, and this will be interesting. Um, I want to see the polls in maybe a week or two, right? Because DeSantis is now, the big difference between DeSantis before his launch and after has not been the launch itself, which clearly did not give him like anything, right? The, yeah. the spaces Twitter like uh thing um, did not give him anything, but the big difference is he's now actually directly going after Trump mm. um, yeah. in a way that he seems like freed now to do it in a way that he was just kind of brushing aside the attacks and saying, you know, whatever, um, like let's move on to the serious stuff basically. And just trying to ignore it. Um but since he launched, he's launched a number of like like that thing about the amnesty, um, amnesty bill, talking about crime, talking about like uh, so he's 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 launched a few, um, you know, direct attacks at Trump. Now, I don't know whether those will make any difference, but it'd be interesting to see the polls in a couple of weeks and see if they do, because he seems to have like taken the gloves off now and actually entered the arena in a way that he didn't before the launch. So the launch itself, I don't think. Yeah. made any difference and he's lucky it didn't you know tank him um but uh 
but yeah, now now he seems like fully in the arena, and we'll see if that makes a difference. Yeah, and I, I think that nationally, probably a lot of people aren't paying that much attention. But I think you know he's in Iowa, he's new, he's in New Hampshire, he's all over local media. There, it'll be interesting to see. You know, if like we, you know, we I really want to see some polls from Iowa and New Hampshire. We're not getting a lot of them. Um, and he and needs he needs one or both of those, right? To needs, be otherwise, the, the case for him being able to win. Yeah. collapses right yeah. even even ted cruz won won iowa right yes. and trump went on to win um but he needs he needs some of those early states and yeah otherwise mark, mark, the case for him collapses completely yeah. yeah mark halpern says he needs both i think he probably needs both but you're right he at least needs one he doesn't know hey trump takes both and then you know everyone, if, everyone if he takes both. second place in both of those he's done i think yeah exactly so if that moves you know we'll see and the, the hope for dissent so everything has to go right he has to win one or both everyone else has to drop out it's a game theory. It's a game theory thing because these because they think if they think Trump is going to be the president or has a good chance of being president, uh, their their incentive is to get good with Trump, right? Their incentive is not to sort of throw in with DeSantis. If Trump looks like he's winning, right, they're going to have to do that. Um, at the same time, you know, they if they think they can make a difference, but it's too you know they've got to coordinate, and this is the problem. And speaking of which, we have. Mike Pence entered the race. Do you see a role for Mike Pence sort of in this in this universe of the Republican primary? Because when I look at it, he is he does have the name recognition of being a former vice president. He is usually polling around third. Uh, what's his what's his role going to be here? Um, I mean, I, I think obviously he's he's going nowhere. I mean, his his um, I, I, maybe I'm letting my personal feelings get in the way here. But like, <laughs> I've never liked Mike Pence. Um, even on the core issues that he's supposed to be identified with, evangelical sort of social conservative issues, he's folded so many times um, on the RIFRA battle as, as governor of Indiana. He's just always been this sort of talk a good game to the social conservatives and then stab them in the back all the time. Um, he's, to that degree, he seems like a slimy politician to me. Um, and I think it's actually very funny that he he obviously linked up with Trump to try to, to to launch his own career. But then in January 6th, now he didn't do what Trump wanted. Um, yeah. And so now that that career is still born, I, I find that to be like sort of some kind of justice in the world in, in a way, because um, he so clearly had cynical reasons for doing it to, to my mind um, to begin with. Uh, but in, in any case, um, I think the one role that he could play. And, and this goes to what we were just talking about. But I think the one role that he could play is, look, he still has that evangelical identification to the extent that he has anything in politics is that. And um, if he can, you know, get an 8% in Iowa, that might, you know, that might be play spoiler for Ron DeSantis, right? Um, and similarly, I think in terms of narrowing the field, right, um, Haley and Scott are now losing badly in South Carolina, which um, I don't see how either one of them continues in the race after that, right? Because that's their home state. And if if they come in like third or fourth or fifth in their home state, I, I don't see how they're going to have the money to continue. Look, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, politics yeah. predictions are always like a ridiculous game because what do I know about this? But it seems like they're in through South Carolina and that's it unless they get some kind of explosion or vote. Yeah, the Pence as the cipher of evangelical votes from DeSantis is correct. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Uh, the um, you know because the, the abortion is another one of these issues where sort of uh, DeSantis is to the right of of Trump, 
And these, you know, even these uh, like pro-life organizations are sort of mad at Trump, but sort of, you know, they sort of kissed and made up, but, you know, they, they, they don't trust that he's fully on their side. And I was listening to some interview with him and he was actually like, he wasn't just like blaming the pro-lifers for uh, screwing up 2022, but he was saying like, you know, they didn't show up. They didn't, you know, they didn't uh, come out. He was just like saying that like they didn't do anything in 2022. I mean, he was really going out of his way to just blame them, which I thought was, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, so yeah, this is, you but, know, but so Trump this, can turn around and say the opposite thing immediately. And, and he does have a strong case, which is I overturned Roe v. Roe v. Wade. It does have that, but I, you know, I think they, know, I mean, but like, I think the evangelical, I think the pro-lifers, they know, like DeSantis, I don't know, I was reading, I don't know what's in DeSantis's heart, but I was reading some uh, reporting that suggested by people close to him that this is like not his main issue, right? Like there were people around him, he thought it was good for the primary. So I don't know, like nobody really knows if this is like something DeSantis cares about deeply. You know, Trump, people don't think he cares about, you know, abortion. I think with Pence, what you have, if you're just like an abortion voter, if you just, all you care about is uh, uh, the pro-life issue. Um, you know, you think he's just a slimy politician, but I think he genuinely believes in, in, I think he's an evangelical who genuinely believes that life begins at conception and that's an important moral issue. He might have, he might have uh, cucked, as they say, on the um, religious freedom stuff. I did, I, re- I remember that when he was governor of Indiana and it was like, it was just some freedom of association bill, right? And um, yeah, this, I think this might have been like the first or one of the first capital strikes where all the corporations said, yes. you know, we're going to move out of the state. There was, uh, there was one the capital strike. Yeah, there was a North Carolina, I, I, I don't know if this was slightly before or slightly after, but there was a North Carolina ba- uh, bath, trans bathroom bill. And I think that might have been first and this might have been like second. It was something like that. They were both very early uh, in these days, in, in the days of the corporations doing this. Um, and so, yeah, he, he, he backed down. Um, but no, I mean, I believe he's, I believe he's has a sincere belief in on abortion. And I, and I think that, you know, some percentage of voters are probably going to see that. And if that's all you care about that, you know, he might be your guy. Um, one speaking on of the subject of the capital strike and all that, um, one very satisfying thing about the polls recently to me, uh, has been to see Christy Noam at 1%. Um, and she's somebody else who, like, demonstrated to me that she's wholly inadequate for the era in which we live. Um, in, in the way that she over the trans in sports issue, which is like the easiest part of that issue, right? Uh, about women's sports, um, where she completely backed down and she backed down as Nate Hawkman has reported very convincingly backed down because of pressure from corporations, um, completely, you know, doing the normal GOP playbook that has gotten us, I think very much where we're at. Um, and that, absolutely tanked any national hopes that she might have had. She was considered a rising star, you know, potential VP pick for Trump, et cetera, et cetera, because of COVID and because she did, she was the other governor who did not shut down her state. Right. Um, But that one issue tanked her national career. And I think that that's really good in terms of um, that shows that the Republican voting base, I think is ahead of the party um, Mike Pence also similar rhetoric to Nikki Haley and and Christy Noam on this stuff, saying, "Well, you know, we need to think about the jobs with Disney. I don't, I don't think that the government should be going after a private corporation." That was Mike Pence coming in um, the other day, um, and then Nikki Haley earlier several weeks ago on Fox. I think the the fact that Christy Noam is not even a blip on the national radar now after becoming sort of the the rising star for a while is a really good indication that Republican voters do care about that issue, um, that they're not going to be receptive, for example, to Trump's tax on DeSantis on Disney, um, which doesn't mean that they won't be receptive to, you know, it's a tax on Ron DeSantis for anything else. But I, I think it is a good indication that the Republican base understands 
um, along with these these Bud Light and Dodgers and Target boycotts. I think the Republican base understands the relationship between cultural leftism and big corporations very, very well and much better than a lot of their elected officials. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't know if that's why Christy Nome is sort of not in the, I mean, who, like, I think a lot of voters probably don't know who Christy Nome is. I mean, the governor she, of South Dakota. She had like huge polls initially. Like th- there was this moment where all the, the, the pieces were written about Christy Nome and how she's the rising star Republican party. She gave that, um, that speech that I thought was not very good, um, in front of the, um, in, in, in front of, uh, of the four faces on, on, uh, in South Dakota, right? Like, or North Dakota. Is that in South Dakota or North Dakota? The, the Rushmore? The Four Faces? Yeah, not Rushmore. <laughs> that's in, uh, that's, uh, that's South Dakota. That's South her state. South Dakota, right. Because yeah. she's, yeah. Um, I don't know across which border that so is. But, um, no, but she own, gave that big faces. speech in front of it. She gave the Republican response. There was there was a lot of like national energy around her at one point. And then it turned on a dime when this reporting happened and when she she folded to corporate pressure on this issue like it, it tracked almost yeah. perfect maybe you're right among the people who you know care about politics and are following it and would need to be boosting someone like uh christy gnome um yeah so yeah so pence you know spoiler or maybe what's his i mean what's his goal what does he want like why is he doing this he thinks you know somebody once told me nobody was close to politicians like they do this because they think guy a drops dead from a heart attack guy b drops dead from a heart attack that's it i'm still there right is, is that all that's sort of going on here um all you need is a big ego and one billionaire yeah yeah that's true yeah there's no all real downside to running right there is no well i mean there's you know you're wasting a year of your life but you know you're you're whatever i mean he's on tv right i guess like pence will be on tv He'll, you know, whatever, go to churches, talk to them, whatever he wants to do with his life. I guess it provides more opportunities. Yeah. I guess the question is why do more people more for president? You're you're right. I guess there's no reason not to do it. Um, okay. So yeah, Noam is is Noam gonna jump in? Have you seen anything about Chris? I've just not heard anything about her. I mean, her the North Dakota governor is jumping jumping in. Do you hear about this? No. It's very exciting. He's he's like actually announcing. Yeah, that's that's how exciting it is. It's his name is uh North Dakota governor uh David. Burgum. He's a, he's going to self finance and he's going to run for president. So that's that's very exciting. Um, but the but the one I'm actually excited about is Chris Christie. And I think that you know we're just I think we're just all sort of looking back to 2016 and we're all remembering uh, we you know us people who really like politics are remembering the New Hampshire debate right where he sort of eviscerated Marco Rubio right. And I think like the wet dream of like the DeSantis camp is like. He gets on the debate stage and then something like this happens. Is that sort of the hope? Is that like sort of the, the Christie's destiny here if he's able to do anything? I mean, I, I it's going to be difficult for him to do that. Um, not only because Trump is more difficult to torpedo on a debate stage than Marco Rubio, um, but also he, you have to get Trump on that debate stage to begin with. And Chris Christie has to pull well enough yeah. to get onto that debate stage. So, yeah, that that seems to be. Look, if all of those things line up, I I suspect that you're right, and Chris Christie will spend the entire time just trying to like ruthlessly take down Trump and and not caring about his own chances and just a bit of vengeance. Um, that being said, I just I don't know that there's that large a chance that he'll have that opportunity. Yeah. So that I mean that's a, so yeah I was thinking of Christie 
yeah, right. Maybe not getting on the debate stage. It's not going to be the easiest thing in the world. I saw the the we saw the tweet from Kornacki um, that had him uh, the highest unfavorables of any Republican. So like Republicans know who he is and they tend not to like him, right? So not a lot of people are in that position. That's a very bad position uh, to be in. Um, and so he's got to make the debate stage. Um, and then uh, Trump has to debate. Now, th- that's interesting. I, I didn't consider the possibility that Trump just would not. I mean, I, he, there have been talks that he might not debate. And it's so funny. This is why sort of why people sort of love Trump. They asked him, you know, are you going to debate? He said, oh, maybe if DeSantis catches me in the polls, right? He's just He just tells you, like, what's going on, right? And so it, it, that's, it makes perfect sense. That's exactly, I think, what he's doing, right? If he's just, if he's 30 points, ahead and it never changes and he's just 30 points ahead for like four or five months from now like there's no he should just go to mar-a-lago and just like eat steaks and like dj weddings or whatever he does down there i mean he'll just he'll just have it right he, he shouldn't even do anything um and then yeah but if DeSantis gets close if it's even you know within the same universe yeah i think they're gonna have to debate it is that the way you see it too it's just basically if DeSantis has to catch him first and then they'll go on the debate stage yeah i mean Look, it, it makes perfect sense from a, a sort of um, game theory analysis for him not to do it until he has a reason to. Um, I, I do think that it's not a good thing. This is something that, that started with COVID, right? Really, um, the, the optionality of debating. Um, we, we saw it in the Arizona governor's race, for example, where Democrat refused to debate. Um, obviously, Joe Biden, you know, um, there were only there were fewer debates and and they were very far away and like it, it allowed the covid environment allowed joe biden to run from his basement um i do think it's not a good thing for the republic uh, to the extent that i mean that even saying that is sort of laughable right but um but yeah i, I think it, it's a good thing uh to put these guys uh, on a stage where they're not mediated um by headlines uh, and have them speak directly to voters. Um, I would like to see Lincoln Douglas debates come back where we just get rid of the moderators and just let them go at it. Now that doesn't really work with like eight people on the stage, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a good thing. It's a good opportunity to actually speak unmediated to voters. And I think that's what Trump used Twitter for. Um, (laughs) but you know, we know now that to a more a larger or lesser extent, all of those those social media workarounds around the media, those themselves are now controlled by the same Borg, more or less. Twitter might be the exception. It might not. Um, there's some some uh, very frustrating uh, things happening today with with that uh, Matt Walsh documentary, What is a Woman, which is getting um, de-boosted for quote-unquote misgendering. Although um, I, just, I, just, I, get a, I get an alert whenever, uh, whenever Elon tweets, and I just got a tweet from Elon saying, being fixed nine minutes ago. So he's, it's, okay. it sounds like he's, I don't even know the context of the tweet, but I'm assuming it's that. Yeah, yeah, it is that. Because um, he had responded before and basically said, oh, this is, this is a mistake. So, uh, but nothing had been done the last time I checked. But yeah, hopefully Twitter will remain reasonably free speech-based platform. But um, I think that was the, the, power that trump had to go on twitter and sort of totally circumvent the media uh where people could just check out the text of what what he said um but i think debates serve much the same function i think they're really important in an ever media more mediated sort of uh media landscape where you know the headline and and the selective quoting and at this point like ai deep faking and you know whatever else um creates so much confusion and bias i think it's a really good thing to have a standard to demand of all candidates to actually stand in front of the American people and debate. Um, that being said, that's like, you know, pie in the sky, like Trump, Trump has a good reason not to, like there's no sort of upside to him debating yeah. really um, with the polls the way they are right now. 
I'm very interested that you said that about, you know, de- debates being good for democracy. What do you think about the DeSantis, um, uh, you know, strategy or sort of principle that he he doesn't talk to the MSM? So he doesn't talk to NBC or like New York Times or Washington Post. I don't know if they're still doing that. It seems that they are. Um, but they're talking to conservative media or they're just talking through social media. Do you think that's similarly har- harmful for democracy? No, because the reason that I found it's almost the op- like the inversion, as in I think the mediated voices of the media are a huge problem. Like the way that they mediate between what the candidates are actually saying and what people actually receive is a problem. And that's why I favor going to social media, because it was at least if the tech companies allow it to be, it was a direct format, yeah. right? Where the candidate says X, Y, Z, and the voter hears X, Y, Z. Um so I'm generally in favor of all of those those things. And I, I yeah, I think it's frustrating that Republican politicians still completely simp for legacy outlets uh, that consistently misrepresent uh, and, and mislead people about what they said and did. Um, I think that's a problem. And I think we, if we ever want it to change, you have to start hitting journalists where it hurts, which is access. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I sort of I disagree with this. I think I, I think you need to sort of engage the media. I mean, there was uh, there was a hit piece on me, um, not a big piece, but like Axios, you know, they did their little bullet points about me at the University of Texas. And, and look at these tweets of this bad guy. And there was a thing, you know, trying to get rid of me. They can't they can't do anything. Um, but, you know, I, I know. So I know the media is bad sometimes. Um, you know, that being said, I mean, they do have an absolutely massive audience. I, like strategically, I don't think it's a good idea. Like the like. You know, you can't be fooled into thinking Twitter like, OK, I'm going to go directly to the people at, at uh, on Twitter. Like you can't be fooled into thinking that that's the entire world. I mean, if you've ever looked at the numbers for like number of people who just watch like the NBC nightly news, like, ba- you know, basic TV, not cable, NBC, CBS, ABC nightly news. Uh, they're absolutely massive. They're you know bigger than people's Twitter accounts. They're bigger than uh, the cable news networks. And the cable news networks, I mean, people, DeSantis team was trying to pretend like the Twitter launch was such a big deal. Um, and they're like, oh, we had you know hundreds of thousands, you know, people in there. Like it would have been smaller than any TV network, much less all of them. They probably would have all covered uh, the DeSantis announcement live. So you would have had CB, uh, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. You would have had m- many multiple times of people watching it. And so. You know, I, they do. They do exist. I mean, they're not gonna. The New York Times is not gonna disappear. CBS. They're not gonna disappear. Um, you know, there's good journalists and there are bad journalists who work for these institutions. Um, you know, call them out when they're unfair, sure. Uh, but I don't think this is good from, as you put it, a democracy perspective or from just a pure, you know, self-interest perspective for DeSantis. So, first of all, it's not my position that Twitter can replace the audience of. of- uh, legacy media. Uh, that's why I think the debates are important, right? Um, so whether it's Twitter or any other way, I think more unmediated contact between the people running for office and what they say and the voters is a good thing. Um, that's why I'm in favor of the debates and, and in favor of them being as little moderated as humanly possible. Um, I, I think DeSantis, the DeSantis camp position isn't you know, we never do public events that are then covered by mainstream yeah. networks. The DeSantis position is, or at least this is really a Christina Pushaw position, right? Obviously, DeSantis has endorsed her vision, but I think she's right about this, which is, you know, why are you going to take juicy stories to the New York Times, right? Why are you going to leak to the New York Times uh, or to Washington Post, right? It's um, important because they have huge audiences and they shake the nerves. What, what ends up happening inevitably is whatever you think you're getting 
is 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 this that garbled through this like misleading filter um and and the only way to actually punish those outlets for their misleading coverage and sometimes factually incorrect coverage is to punish them for access it's 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 like this this i mean it is like the the trump and uh, media game right where they're both gaining what they need from the game um where media loves to cover donald trump in in a very like often misleading way right but they need him and the trump administration leaked consistently to the new york times and and to washington post um and i think i think christina has a good point i think she has at least in florida right she has managed to um to get the kind of coverage that she wants i think it's just different it's it's call by call right should you if you have the opportunity to sit down in front of the audience and talk directly to the audience the way that trump did on cnn and you're pretty confident that you can like go tete-a-tete with whoever they put up against you, I think that's a good opportunity to talk directly to an audience that wasn't listening to you before. But to give a quote or to give a story, right, to some of these legacy outlets guarantees that, first of all, because you don't, you can't control what they're writing and you can't control how they manipulate what you said, right? I think it's very different. If you can go on one of these outlets and you get unmediated airtime, I think it's a positive. But if, if you give a quote to the New York Times instead of giving it, um, you know, as a presidential candidate, I don't know, to like the Washington Examiner or whatever it is. Um, I think you are helping these outlets then later smear you. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? So there was a story today that uh, Axios that was about how to pronounce DeSantis's name. Uh, and they had like DeSantis saying it different ways. And then they had his wife like saying it another way, like DeSantis or DeSantis. Uh, and then they, <laughs> the end of the story, they're like, we went to uh, the DeSantis campaign and the Never da- Back Down pack, and neither would reply about how to pronounce his name. <laughs> like, shouldn't they just, shouldn't they tell the media how to pronounce his name? Don't you need, it's like such a reductio ad absurdum, I think, of the sort of, uh, of the DeSantis strategy, isn't it? I mean, I just don't think that matters, right? I, I don't, I don't think it would have been a terrible thing for them to reply, but yeah. I also don't think that it matters. I don't think that they're any better off if they had. Um, these these legacy outlets need Republican candidates as much as, you know, the other way around. And Republican candidates have been unwilling to cut off access as a negotiating tactic. And I think that that's bad. And then I have the separate argument about like I, as much direct contact between elected officials. And I mean, I, I like the days of, of the Jacksonian Republic, right, where uh, people could just walk up to the White House and yell at the president. <laughs> of course, the president was armed back then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just it's uh, it's uh, what do you think about the, uh, you know, my 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 impression is so I remember 2016. Uh, I was I was like so but 2015 I was sort of like excited like this was really fun when Trump was running so I was like watching TV all the time and Trump was everywhere on every single channel like Morning Joe like he's just said that he's like talking to them for like an hour like he's their buddy like literally every single morning I mean the amount of media time he got was absolutely incredible um, and you know right now he comes back and the first thing he does right is is, is CNN and there's just a sort of spirit of like I'm not afraid of these people. Like I will go talk to them. He, he's like, I mean, there's there's something very like powerful about Trump, like hating the New York Times, calling the fake news. They're trying to put him in jail, but he's like calling Maggie Hab- Haberman all day, and they're like sort of best friends or chatting on the phone, right? He just doesn't care. He just doesn't live in this life of like they're gonna. And he's like, he, he gets in trouble like an idiot. I mean, he goes and says things that like hurt him in like legal investigations. I mean, it's really it's really funny, but it, I mean, this is sort of what Trump is. And so DeSantis, it sort of seems like 
you know, the energy, it seems like it's, he doesn't, he, it looks like he doesn't feel like he's confident. Like he couldn't go into a town hall with uh, Caitlin Collins, right. Or any CNN reporter and not get rattled. That's, that's no, he probably will. I think that, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but the, the Christina Pushaw strategy isn't, isn't really about this. It's about when somebody, it's not really about like, oh, if, if I get the opportunity to do a well, town hall that, on that, CNN, I'm going to turn yeah. them down. It's more like uh, they, you know, media is some legacy outlet is going to write a hit piece about me. And then they like email me for comment, right? So that they can appear more unbiased by jamming in the, the candidate's comment in like the 15th paragraph, right? And she just writes back to them and says like, screw yeah. you. I know yeah, that you've already written the story. That, I, I'm sure if CNN, if DeSantis wanted to do it, if DeSantis was willing, I mean, I'm sure CNN would love to have a town hall with him. I, I think it's more than that. I think it's like you literally just won't sit down for it. Like if NBC said, let's have an interview, even a town hall. Like I don't know if they've asked him, but like my understanding is like they're just not talking to the media at all. Right. So it's more than just comments on stories. We'll see. Um, I, I'd be surprised if he he never like even in a, a relatively generous format if he never sits down with them. But the, the strategy up till now yeah. has been more about, you know, uh, giving comment or especially leaking and giving stories, right? So the whole Trump administration leaked like a sieve and almost exclusively to left-wing media. Um, and that brought a lot of prestige and a lot of clicks on left-wing media because they mm-hmm. broke a lot of those stories. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I think this sort of this mentality of we have to punish them, you know, I, I, you know, I understand what you're saying. You know, there's, I don't think that this is like, you know, I don't know, like it it doesn't strike me that like maybe individual reporters, you could say, look, uh, you know, you could say, look, Taylor Lawrence, you are so dishonest and so out of your mind that, you know, we're not going to talk to you, but I, I don't know if it's role of like candidates or conservatives to like punish them by, you know, withholding access. Do they really, I mean, do they, you know, they'll, they'll, they have enough material to publish, right? They're just going to, the New York Times will still have articles. The leaks will just come from, you know, uh, other Republicans or they'll come from other campaigns or they'll come from Democrats or they'll come from, you know, the intelligence community, whatever. I mean, it's not like you're going to like deprive them and they're not going to have stories anymore. Like, I, I don't think that that's. Well, you know, first of all, there are stories and there are stories. There are stories that break important news and there's stories that don't, I mean, that are essentially like slate opinion pieces. Right. Um, I think that there's quite a distinction for the the prestige of the paper between those two things, but more fundamentally, I actually think Trump and DeSantis are just going about this in a different way, but I think they're both right in the way they think about it. They're also the way that Newt Gingrich thought about it in 2012, where he became the first candidate to get a huge boost from voters for directly attacking the media. I think it's about recognizing the institutional bankruptcy of a lot of these outlets. And, and the extent to which they don't only have a bias, but they're willing to outright print falsehoods um, to, to back up their political beliefs. And I, I think it's about just recognizing that the emperor has no clothes, that these these legacy outlets, you know, um, don't they have not earned for a long time the prestige with with with, with which they're treated. Um, and I think Trump does that in a different way. DeSantis does that in a different way. But I think both of them still have that mentality. Fundamentally, Trump just calls it the failing New York Times. And DeSantis is like, I'm going to deny you something important to you, which is access and stories. Um, and you can I guess that's the larger uh, debate between the two of them as to which one is more effective, which one is actually able to convince Republican voters, which one will be better for the country. You know, it does go to a central divide between them, but they both have the same mentality, which is these legacy media institutions are not worth um, 
are are not worth our trust are not have not earned our trust um they have in fact squandered any you know good faith they might have had not just for conservatives but for like more than half the country um and that's backed up by all the polls, institutional polls about media people don't trust media and especially after covid i think that's a very potent argument yeah yeah speaking of um legacy media and i guess this will be this will be our last topic because we don't have much time left uh, we you know we talked about this article the right is all wrong about masculinity uh, by our old you know friend david french um have you read uh, i've thought about picking up holly's uh book manhood have you have you looked at it I haven't read the book, but I did read the the David French article. Okay, yeah, I read. I did read. I read the French article too. <laughs> I don't, I read not because I normally read the failing New York Times or David French, but <laughs> you don't need tips on 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 discovering you know masculine you know discovering <laughs> your manhood or or whatever it's supposed to be there. Yeah, there was another review on uh, the New York Times that I was like sort of more detailed than the French one. Um, I you know something I, I know people like to hate on David French. But, you know, I do think there's something here about the idea that conservatives do whine and they do complain a lot. And, you know, the question is, how justified is it? Um, you know, we were we were, we were going to have a lar- larger discussion on, uh, uh, you know, like how angry people are, or how angry they should be. And that's, you probably don't have time for that. But maybe we'll just talk about French and, and Howley sort of, you know, as a uh, uh, as a sort of a start of that conversation. Um you know, and to go around like saying it's the end of the republic every time you lose the election. I mean, to say that like the country is going to be destroyed. I maybe I just don't share. Maybe you think this is like a reasonable place to sort of be at this point in our history. And look, I think there are things that are very bad going on. I don't think they're as easy as vote Republican instead of Democrat or have the real conservatives take over and you know the Republican Party and have the win. I think there are like deep like societal issues like things like, you know, things entitlement spending, things like, you know, the, the culture where it's gone and the anti-natalist culture. These things that a lot of these things cannot be solved by just um, Republicans winning within the, you know, conservatives winning within the Republican Party and then Republicans winning elections. Um, and so I think that there needs to be like more stoicism. And I think I sort of agree with David French on, on this point. But you you did not like this article. So uh, please tell me why. No, I, I mean, and, and there's a larger question here that we can we can talk about. When we promised to talk about last time about whether it's reasonable to have a doomer perspective um, on where the country is. Uh, I think it is. I think it's a, a reasonable perspective to have now that doesn't mean that you know it's inevitable that like the arc of history of the united states is bending towards disaster or anything like that um but but i do think that we're in a a very bad position but first about this david french article i mean the line that just stood out to me as uh like just obviously wrong um he, he writes aside from dominance a concept with precious few virtuous uses the other aspects of traditional uh, masculinity the apa cited have important roles to play right so the the apa um defined traditional masculinity and and said basically like it's it's on the whole harmful and this is part of the jumping point of of, of his review uh but he said uh, so this this apa document defined traditional masculinity as marked by stoicism competitiveness dominance and aggression um so he even acknowledges that that aggression might have an important role to play in society or, or virtuous role, but then doesn't doesn't acknowledge that dominance has as well. I mean, at least my definition of dominance would be um, exercising power over somebody, mm-hmm. over another person. And it seems to me that that has an, a number of obvious uses, both you know personal and political, that are virtuous. It depends on the relationship between who's exercising the power and who's. Being having power exercised against them, and for what purpose? 
right? It seems very much in line with those other qualities, which is to say that physical aggression can obviously be used for just purposes or unjust purposes, right? Um, and and that he would just throw away, it seems to me on this like very sort of wishy-washy liberal tick that he seems to have, that, oh, dominance is bad, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't think yeah. that there are virtuous purposes. I mean, one obvious one might be attracting women. Um, but but <laughs> but there are other ones, right? Like any legitimately hierarchical relationship has an element of dominance in it. Yeah. So does he think there are no legitimate hierarchical relationships in society or such relationships can never be virtuous? Do you think maybe you have French derangement syndrome? Because I, I see what you're I know exactly what you're saying. Um and I, 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 you know, I agree with you, but like you could interpret this line. He didn't elaborate on this. So this wasn't like a thing he went to do. But That's what actually drove me crazy, though, because it was like so obvious to him that this was the case that he just threw it away in a line without even bothering to make an argument for it. Well, when I read it, I wasn't like, take, I, like, I just assumed that he, what he meant was like dominance. It's like, you know, the word, the word, like, you know, just belittling people or hurting people or trying to control them. You know, that's, that's what I thought. But I, when you put it like the way you put it, like, okay, any hierarchy has dominance. Like, okay, that makes, that makes sense to me. And that, that sounds right. But, you know, maybe French just, you know, he didn't think about it you know, that clearly, right? You could see how we like could write that and it could be defensible, right? Because that's the way I read it. Well, I think that the assumption, it reflects something about his larger mentality, right? Which <laughs> is that there, yes. there are like these, these bad things about, he has a certain view of the right as like full of these very bad people with very bad impulses um, and doesn't even bother to to sort of check that gut impulse to the extent that he writes something that is flatly, not just not true about our society, but like has never been true in any civilization on earth, right? Um, unless you think that literally every human civilization of all time has been, had no virtue whatsoever. Um, that that's, That is the essence of the problem I have with him. It's like he is putting his former credentials to work um, on behalf of, of knee-jerk liberal impulses for knee-jerk collapse from the, the same people. And I, I, I find that just to be a, like, a, a project not worth engaging with in any serious way. Yeah, I think this is about David Fr- This is about David French. So if you've never know, heard of David French and you just read this article, you, you don't think it would, you, you could have, you might have been able to. It out to me. I think, I think, you know, there, there were parts of the article uh, that I agreed with about stoicism. I do think that there's a certain virtue in stoicism, but then again, uh, this returns to the question of how justified are people in complaining? And and maybe this is a good sort of way to close that, you know, the conversation yeah. in a way, because it goes back to this question of rereading what Trump voters had to say in 2015 and thinking that it sounds a lot more reasonable after the last five years about the system being rigged against them, about, you know, a lot of this stuff sounds very non-stoic. It sounds whiny. And that's how it came off to me initially. It was like, this is, you know, this is the sort of mentality that we rightly deride um, when the left, for example, talks about black poverty. Um, You know, that that there's no room for individual agency in the way that you're talking about this or individual... Uh, character or virtue it's it's all like the forces of the world are acting on you now the question is how true is that because if if it's if it's substantially true in important ways then it's not why stoic to point it out and fight back against it but if if it is then this is why i just disagree with david french right he just takes it for granted that it is that their concerns don't have any merit that in fact you know the world isn't rigged against 
poor black or sorry, poor white kids from Appalachia. And it's very unclear to me that that's the case these days. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, there's so much there. Yeah. We try to keep these things an hour though. And we promise you listeners, we will, we will get to how angry should conservatives be. And maybe, maybe we'll do, do you, uh, would you, um, I've been thinking about reading actually Holly's book. Uh, maybe even writing something about it. Would you Would you be interested in possibly reading Howley's book? Yeah, let's, I'll read let's, it. Let's, let's, I, let's I like Josh Holly, and and okay. I think it's an interesting subject. I I do think he could have chose a better title. There's manhood. just too many jokes that can be made about. But uh, <laughs> like Josh Holly's manhood, yeah, very, yeah, right. But but no, generally, I th- I think um, Senator Holly has has been he has said some very interesting things about this subject in particular uh, that are worth taking seriously. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm down to read it. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, until next time, everyone.